All right, John chapter 4, page 1616. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. Well, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptised, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to, to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming when you worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
Thank you, Jeff. And hello, everyone. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, my name's Jamie, if we haven't met yet. Um, I'm the campus pastor at Trinity Kernelite Gardens. And can I say your brothers and sisters there are praying for you regularly and totally cheering you on every step of the way. And it's a thrill for me to get to be here to catch up with some old faces and see lots of faces who I haven't met before. It's a wonderful thing. It'd be great to keep that part of the Bible open in front of you. Um, but to start off, let me ask... Do you know what it's like to really pour yourself into something satisfying? So I picture my dad in his shed growing up. All right, so my dad is a projects guy for sure. So, you know, fixing windsurfing gear, customizing guitars, building model gliders, you name it. I just picture walking across the yard at our family home as a kid to find dad in the shed on a sweltering Saturday afternoon. He'd be there, like no air con, just in his thongs and board shorts, and that's it. Soaring or soldering, just totally into it. Uh, Dad, we saved you some lunch. What, lunchtime already? Absorbed in something satisfying. Uh, now, I'm not too handy at those kind of projects myself. Uh, but what is it for you that you could get so wrapped up in that you might even forget to eat lunch and not even be hangry about it? Those satisfying moments, they can be hard to find. I have it on good authority from project guys like my dad who have retired that given the opportunity to sink weeks and weeks into shed time, it sounds awesome but it actually might leave you coming up empty because you end up putting too much weight on it. As the great philosopher Mick Jagger pointed out, satisfaction, right? It's a hard thing to pin down. It's like a great cup of coffee. Uh, you know, it's so satisfying on one level, but it actually dehydrates you. So if you think it's going to quench your thirst, you're just going to end up with a parched mouth and the shakes, okay? It highlights the fact, though, that we sometimes chase fulfillment from things that aren't meant to fulfill us. You know, for some of us, it's the dream life of providing a secure life for our families, you know, in the perfect home. And that chase just leaves us working our fingers to the bone in constant jealousy of the Joneses next door and becoming distant from the very family that we're trying to love. Or for others, it's the comfort of alcohol that becomes a life-sucking enemy. It's the young adult who pours herself into a life of partying and hooking up and is left wondering why she feels so emotionally scarred and guilty. Or the teenager who dedicates himself to his sport only to get that devastating injury that leaves him with nothing. Hey, what about for our churches? Uh, Colonel Light Gardens, we just turned 10 the other week. Tonsley, you've just turned one. Praise God. As we take stock and, and work out kind of where to next... What are we going to pour our wonderful but limited resources into? What are we going to give the best of our time, energy, and money towards? 
I don't know about you, but with so many competing demands in life, I want it to be something satisfying. The passage we just heard tells us what satisfies God. And I can't think of anyone more qualified to help us work out what's worth chasing than the God who made us and loves us. He knows not just what we want, but what we need. And if you're here today, not quite sure about the whole God who made us and loves us bit, I hope this will be a great window in to the God of the Bible's heart. And I hope you find it stirs something for you. In John 4, we see Jesus, God in the flesh, pouring himself out on a sweltering afternoon for something he reckons is totally worth it. And it's something so fulfilling, not just for him, but for us and for every thirsting soul. So come with me to point one in your outlines. One parched soul finds water. At this point in John's gospel, wedding bells are in the air. So in John 2, we saw Jesus at a wedding, thinking about when his time would come. In John 3, John the Baptist called Jesus the groom. And at the start of John 4, we find ourselves at Jacob's well. Now, Old Testament readers know a well is a great place to meet your spouse. So we hit this scene thinking, okay, so who is the divine groom going to marry? And the shock is just who Jesus meets at the well that day. Now, Jesus doesn't marry anyone in a literal romantic sense, but John is clear that Jesus is the divine groom, bringing people into a permanent, loving union with God. And the first person to join that redeemed mass of people called the Bride of Christ is this reject of rejects. She's from a rejected people, the Samaritans. Uh, to give you a sense of the tension between Jewish people like Jesus and Samaritans, here's a quote from a rabbi from around the same time as Jesus. He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. That's kind of lovely language, isn't it? Samaritans were the people who gave God a bad name. They built a rival temple that God never asked them to. They claimed Jacob as their father, yet also followed a bunch of pagan religions from the cultures that they'd mixed with over the years. To a Jewish person, to touch something that a Samaritan person had touched, it'd make you dirty, let alone drink from her water bucket. John's first readers would have been shocked to see the king of the Jews move towards a Samaritan like this. Even the kind and tolerant ones would have felt that little inner cringe. And this woman knows it. Verse 9, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's not just a Samaritan though. She's been rejected by other Samaritans. So Jesus finds her alone in the heat of midday 
when everyone else is at work or home. She's not welcome in the cool of the morning because she has a reputation. And when Jesus offers her this living water, you, you can see that she's sick of living with the shame. Verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's thirsty not just for water, but for a different life. And Jesus knows exactly why. Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, how would you feel if someone singled out the single most shameful part of your life and put their finger on it? We're not told the extent to which this woman may have been the victim or the perpetrator in these failed relationships, but it's clear that she was filth in the community's eyes. And her response here tells us she knew that she'd contributed her share to this whole mess. She's been looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. What was she chasing? Passion? The security of the perfect husband? That chase had left her parched. Sitting here talking to a stranger at midday. So here are the barriers between this woman and God in the flesh. She's of a different gender and race, a different faith, and she's got baggage that's left her unclean in the sight of her peers and God because she has been living way out of step with how God designed human beings to live. And Jesus smashes every single one of those barriers that day at Jacob's well. He moves towards her and he's not really ordering something from her. He's offering her living water. The waters of eternal life that come from God's Holy Spirit. More refreshing than a cup of cold water in the Samaritan heat, these waters well up deep in the soul rushing over the parched ground of our hearts that we work so hard to harden against God, quenching the thirst that we all have to be right with our maker, radiant in his sight and loved every day. And of all people, it's not the religiously good Nicodemus of chapter 3 who gets it. It's this reject of rejects. Jesus is for every thirsting soul. Hey, here's a story I heard from Bush Church Aid. Uh, Taylor was abandoned by her mum at birth. Raised by her dad who worked in the mines, uh, when Taylor got pregnant at 18, the father didn't stick around. Around this time, Taylor found herself walking past Roxby Community Church 
and something made her want to walk in. She was welcomed by Gemma, who took her along to a new parents group and then to a midweek Bible study group where Taylor started to learn about God's love for her and her soon-to-be-born baby. Just weeks ago, Taylor became a Christian. Taylor knows that she's a child of God and Gemma and her husband are now the godparents to Taylor's little baby. Jesus is still offering living water to the thirsty, even those the world might judge. So can I ask, are you sick of pouring yourself into things that just leave you with a parched mouth and the shakes? I don't know what it is for you. Is it the perfect partner? Security. Recognition, maybe. Let me say, however far that chase has led you from God, it's not too far for Jesus. He is ready to smash down whatever barriers there might now be between you and him. But for him to smash those barriers down, you've got to let him see them. There's no hiding with Jesus. That's abundantly clear, isn't it, in John 4? And I don't know how you feel about that. Let me say, one of the most commendable things this woman does is when Jesus puts his finger on the most shameful things she's ever done, she doesn't say, how dare you? No, she keeps the conversation going. Maybe she has the inkling that you can trust Jesus with the worst of you. If you're not sure about that inkling yourself, maybe you need to explore what makes Jesus tick a little bit more. Point two, Jesus' thirst. When the woman asks Jesus, you know, why are you talking to me? The answer isn't just, I'm really, really thirsty. This whole conversation gives us a stunning insight into what Jesus is happy to pour himself out for, what he's willing to go hungry and thirsty for on a hot afternoon while his disciples are off getting food. Because Jesus' biggest thirst is to chase down all the strays. Did you notice in verse 1 that he decides to leave Judea at the moment he's starting to get famous there? He's learned that the Pharisees have heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And so he decides, now's a good time to leave. We have a saviour who decides to leave the crowds who are loving him to chase down one anonymous woman in dirty old Samaria. Never too far, never too few. Jesus' heart is so set on the strays that in verse 4, he doesn't just happen to pass through Samaria. No, John says he had to. Now, it was on the way to Galilee, but there's clearly more going on than that. Why else would this Jewish man park himself there, separating himself from his Jewish followers so that he can speak to this Samaritan? He had to go. And a Jewish reader of scripture 
should have gotten that because God hadn't given up on the Samaritans, even if they had. The bad blood went all the way back to about 930 BC when the kingdom of Israel split into north and south. The south became Judea with Jerusalem as its capital. Uh, that's what the woman means when she says Jews. The capital of the north was Samaria. And though neither did a good job of following God and his ways, the north, Samaria, went way off the rails. They ended up in exile first. And while the south got lots of prophets saying, you know, the saviour is going to come to Jerusalem, the north doesn't get as much attention and even if they did, the Samaritans only read the first five books of the Old Testament anyway. Yet God promises later in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37, to bring the north and the south back together. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or divided into two kingdoms, God says. After everything, God's heart is still for the Samaritans. Let me try to illustrate by telling you the parable of the prodigal son. But I'm going to name the father's two boys, Jude and Sam, to represent Judea and Samaria. Okay? A man had two sons. The younger son, let's call him Sam, broke his father's heart demanded his inheritance early, got out as soon as he could, ran off to a life of sex, drugs and rock and roll without a thought of home until Sam hit rock bottom. When Sam came back, tail between his legs, he was shocked to find that his father was waiting out on the street for him, not to punish him, but to welcome him home and to cover the cost of Sam's mistakes. The older son, let's call him Jude, was more responsible. He stayed close to home. But when he found out that his dad was throwing a party to celebrate Sam's homecoming, Jude was disgusted. Like, why does Sam get such a fuss? Jude was the one who had done the right thing all these years. And in that moment, it became clear that Jude is now the one at risk of being lost from his father. Not in sex, drugs and rock and roll, but in the self-righteous pride of his own heart. But here's the thing. The father's heart goes out to both of his lost boys. And he will stop at nothing until the whole family is back under his roof. And so, of course, Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is God running into the street to welcome his lost child home, an anonymous Samaritan reject. So whether you're more of a brazen Sam or more of a bitter Jude, Jesus longs to welcome you home. And he's consumed with the task of chasing down all the strays. Who are the people that you're tempted to think might be too far gone for God? I know that Christians know the right answer is that God's love is for everyone. But 
let's be honest, we all have biases. I do. We all have little cultural triggers that tell us to maybe cross Rundle Mall at the sight of a certain kind of person. Whether it's the agitated looking person who clearly slept on a park bench last night. We don't think that makes someone too far gone for God, do we? Or the pregnant teenager. We wouldn't say the gospel isn't for her, would we? The devout Muslim. Or the slick secularist who is just so committed to progressive ideals that you can't imagine them ever bowing the knee to Jesus. Would they feel welcome at church? Jesus' thirst is to chase down all the strays. No one is too far gone for him. In fact, it's the woman who knows she's thirsty who is the first to take a drink. If that's Jesus' thirst, then we want to be ready, don't we, to drop everything to join in that chase. That one unlikely person might be the spark that ignites the fire of gospel hope in a community. Like this woman who ends up bringing the whole village to come and meet Jesus. Or like Taylor who is now bringing a friend along to learn about Jesus, uh, who knows how God might use her to impact Roxby? Who are the people you secretly think are too far gone for God? You might be listening to all this, nursing a quiet suspicion that if we all knew your backstory, we'd think it was you. If that's you, um, let me encourage you to rethink that suspicion. Jesus thought the reject of rejects was worth his time. Jesus' biggest thirst is to chase down all the strays, and that means every bit of all the strays. He longs for wholehearted worshippers. When Jesus raises the whole issue of this woman's checkered past, She realises that he must be a prophet, but then takes the conversation in kind of a weird direction. Verse 20, she says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's tapping into that whole Samaritan Jewish divide and their rival temples. Where should we worship God? She's testing this prophet, maybe seeing if she can really trust him while maybe diverting to a topic that's just a little bit less personal. Whatever her motive, Jesus is kind enough to take the question seriously and give an answer that takes her further into what kind of saviour he is. Verse 21, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. You can't limit God to one place. True, he did choose to make himself available in a particular way in the temple at Jerusalem, 
But that was always pointing to this era that Jesus came to bring, when people will worship God, not just in one place, but everywhere, in spirit and truth. In Jesus, God reveals the truth about himself, not in a place, but in a person. And Jesus gives the gift of God's Holy Spirit, who comes to give us new life from the inside out. So worship in spirit and truth is about having a personal relationship with God through Jesus and then living out the new life you have through his spirit. It's an everywhere, all of life thing. Jesus thirsts for wholehearted worshippers, which means we need to be careful of domesticating God. This woman got a real-life taste of how God's heart for all his people really is for all of them, even the bits we like to keep secret. To say that God can have this part of my life but not that, it's just as offensive as saying that God lives in this city, but not that. We can't say to him, you can have my Sundays, but not my Mondays. Or you can touch everything, but my drinking habits. Or my career ambitions. My wallet. What would that off-limits thing be for you? By the end of this conversation, this woman has glimpsed just how deeply Jesus longs for every bit of all the strays. But we do get to verse 26 kind of still wondering, like, did Jesus ever get that glass of water? We know Jesus is tired and thirsty, but we watch him have this epic conversation instead. And I think we're meant to feel... Jesus forgetting the heat of the day because something he's way more passionate about has just come up. There's someone who needs to be saved. And nothing gives him more joy and satisfaction than offering the truth about God and the life-giving spirit to her. And of course, that's just a taste of the lengths that we will watch Jesus go to. What does Jesus say in John 19 as he hangs dying for the sins of the world? I am thirsty. And there we see just how much he is willing to pour out into his mission to bring cleansing to the filthy, honour to the shamed, life to the dead. He went thirsty so that we might get to drink streams of living water. He gave everything so that you might find life in knowing him. So point three, what are you thirsting for today? Whatever it is, if you take it to its logical conclusion, will it leave you satisfied? Let me try to unpack how life with Jesus is so deeply fulfilling. Uh, first, there's the contentment that comes from knowing that the one relationship that matters most is sorted. Uh, we draw strength from relationships, right? Uh, maybe it's your spouse in it with you for better or worse, or a close friend who you can share everything with, 
maybe a team at work that's greater than the sum of its parts. When we don't have good relationships, man, it sucks the life out of us. Because you can face just about any situation if you know that you've got that person, whoever it is, to kind of go back and report to at the end of the day. All of that is just a taste of the contentment that Jesus offers to all, whatever your relationship status is. This woman can now face the crowds that shunned her because she now has the one relationship that matters most, an unbreakable, unconditional love relationship with the uncontainable God of the universe. It gives her enormous strength. Because so what if the crowds think I'm an idiot? Jesus thinks I'm worth his life. When you have that contentment, you'll find yourself more and more energised by the things that energise your saviour. Just like that woman walking back into the village... Jesus calls us to develop a thirst for gospel adventure. It's sweaty work, but so worth pouring yourself into. So what could it look like to nurture that good kind of thirst? It might start small with moving towards others here at church. Jesus crosses just a few barriers to talk to this woman, right? It's fitting that we might start wanting to cross whatever social barriers there might be between me and the person at church who looks like they might be a bit on the edges. Do you remember what it's like to walk into church for the first time? Maybe that's you today. It's kind of terrifying, right? You realise that you're pretty much dependent on someone else who knows what's going on around here to make the first move. And I'm thankful because I know that kind of thing happens here all the time. It's a step towards adventure because who knows where that might lead. What about the gospel adventure of moving towards the meaningful with people? Uh, we're not prophets, so I'm not saying that we should claim the ability to point out a person's deepest shame. But we can learn from our Saviour to ask questions that move things towards things of significance and maybe, yeah, even into hurts and regrets. The gospel is a message about life and death and sin and forgiveness. It's going to be harder to share it with someone if we've never talked about anything meaningful. As we're gripped by Jesus' heart for all kinds of strays, that thirst will lead you into some bizarre and thrilling situations. Uh, one that sticks in my mind is uh, a few years ago, we were part of a church in a very multicultural part of Sydney. Uh, I loved getting to rub shoulders with people so culturally different to what I assumed a Christian looked like. And I'll never forget going around uh, to eat in the apartment of a family from Iran. Uh, they had deep roots in Islam. Uh, and they just started checking out the claims of Jesus because they had Muslim friends who had converted to Christianity. 
Uh, anyway, through that connection, I somehow ended up eating in their home, foods I'd never tasted, playing guitar with their son, uh, hearing stories about life in Iran, sharing a few of my favorite Bible stories. I remember sitting in, in that apartment in a part of town I'd never seen before, thinking, okay, this is a long way from Glenelg East, you know, gospel adventure. Where might life with Jesus take you? Maybe you'll find yourself at the kitchen table of a neighbour you've decided to get to know, talking about life and praying that you might get a chance to share something of the hope you have in Jesus. Maybe you'll find yourself just having to go to Broken Hill or some other part of this big country so you can be part of the mission of a local church up there because there are so many places in this big country just crying out for more Bible truth. Let's pray that God might grow us in that gospel thirst. But hey, unlike God, we are contained in one place. Um, we're limited human beings. So let's be realistic. Pouring more into Jesus' mission will mean pouring less into something else. It'll be really practical to come out of today thinking, what's one thing that I could drop or do less of so that I could pour more of my best energy into chasing the strays? That might mean giving less to the enjoyable but fleeting things of now, so let's pray that God would give us satisfaction in the things that satisfy him. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the barrier-smashing kindness of Jesus. And today we, we want to drink deeply, Father, from those waters of life, of forgiveness, cleansing, love, eternity. Out of that satisfaction, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to thirst for the things that you thirst for. Amen.